you don't have the king in your life, you have nothing. That is the truth, even though it's easy to think we have everything when we're in charge of our own lives, at least in our own minds. We have a massive objective tonight, and that is to understand more deeply than we ever have before what our main problem is as human beings. And the Bible calls it sin. It calls it lots of things, rebellion. We'll see later the words the Bible uses to describe the human problem. But I want you to know something. I've been praying about this. We've been praying about this because to really come to terms with our sin requires a miracle. I'm convinced of it. And it's a miracle that comes not actually when we focus on our sin, but when we focus on God who our sin is against. Here's the crazy thing. I think of everything Christians believe, the easiest one to prove is human selfishness, human self-absorption, the human sin problem we all have. What do I mean by that? Well, just read the news for, for, for 30 seconds and tell me we don't have a sin problem in the world, in humanity. It's undeniable as wars continue to constantly rage and crime and rape and abuse and neglect of humans and hatred rages in this world. Oh, there's good woven in by the grace of God. But we've got a serious problem with humanity. If you don't think there's a human sin problem, I, I plead with you to take an honest look for just a little while into your own heart and then tell me that there isn't a problem in your own heart of a what Luther called an inward curvature of the self. You don't need to teach kids to be selfish, do you? All the effort goes in the other direction to help them to be unselfish and loving and kind and considerate. That's where all the work has to go in the human heart. But here's the crazy thing. Even though of all the things Christians believe, I think that the most easy one to prove just from daily evidence is the human sin problem. But I think of everything Christians believe, sin is the hardest thing for us to accept. To honestly come to terms with our own sin. We will spiritualize, we will excuse, we will trivialize, we'll minimize, we'll blame, we'll deflect the reality of our sin and the judgment that it incurs from a holy God. We will do almost anything to convince ourselves that we've done nothing wrong and everybody else is to blame. One of my children um, shaved her eyebrow off when she was eight years old. Just experimenting, you know how kids will do. And when Don and I saw this, we said, what happened, honey? And she said, what are you talking about? We said, you're missing one of your eyebrows. And she just looked at us and continued to look at us saying, no, I didn't. No, I didn't. What are you, I don't know what you're talking about. You know, that's a funny story of a little kid who does something silly and, and just won't own up to it, but that is in all of our hearts. 
We'll do anything to get out of the reality of our sins. So we need a miracle to truly come to terms with our sin. We've seen in the story, in the film today, in the passages we'll look at today, this guy Nebuchadnezzar who keeps having this, this interaction with Yahweh, the God of the Bible, the God of Daniel and his friends. But, and, and he's impressed by him. He has experiences with him. He has intellectual and emotional reactions to God saving him and providing for him and interpreting his dream and doing all these things. And he'll be impressed. And he'll have temporary responses that lack real transformation. And so we want to understand sin so we don't go to temporary responses or temporary solutions to our sin, but the ultimate solution found in Jesus. The beauty of confronting our own sin for ourselves is you don't need to fear it because God's got a solution to it. And we'll especially talk about that tomorrow night. So let's pray as we go to God's word in Daniel. Lord, help us now as we go to your word and think about what it means to recognize our rebellion against you, to acknowledge that we have a profound problem that only you have the solution for. And so, Lord, help us now to be truly teachable from you and your word, to be truly willing to hear about our condition before you so that we would never think of solving the problem ourselves. We know that's impossible. So that we would never go to, to band-aids when we've got cancer of the soul. So help us now by the Spirit's power and according to the scriptures we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So please open your Bibles to Daniel chapter 2 is where we'll start tonight. And continuing our journey along with Daniel and his friends in Babylon under the reign of King Nebuchadnezzar. And we're going to focus on this, this king, Nebuchadnezzar, who is the most powerful man in the world at this time, and he keeps having these experiences with the God of Daniel. And he goes back and forth. It's like this ping-pong game with God that he's playing. And so we've seen this happen, just like the, the video portrays, where Daniel interprets his dream. Right? And then look at chapter 2, verse 47. Listen to Nebuchadnezzar's response. In response to Daniel, who serves God, the, the Yahweh, the God of the Bible, here's what he says. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel. Right there, he's missing the point. Daniel's doing everything he can to redirect the praise to God who gives him insight, but Nebuchadnezzar can't get it. He's still staying on a, a horizontal plane. It's all going toward human beings, himself and now Daniel. Right there he's missing the point. He pays homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering, an incense be offered up to him. He's worshiping Daniel. He's, he's offering praise to Daniel. The king answered and said to Daniel, truly your God. Notice he's still saying your God. He's recognizing things that are true, but it's not my God yet. We're not sure where Nebuchadnezzar ever really ends up, but we see this back and forth where he never truly gets it. Truly, your God is a God of gods and, Lord, and King of kings and revealer of mysteries, for you've been able to reveal this mystery. So he acknowledges God. 
He acknowledges the power God has, the ability God has to give Daniel these insights. And then he turns around and he constructs the very image Daniel warned him him about in his dream. He he builds this, this impressive idol, this statue. He's idolatrous. He he keeps redirecting his worship, his praise, his allegiance, his devotion to earthly things, to things on a human plane. He's got to lift his eyes to God, and he'll do that momentarily, but then he'll fixate again on just what's here, what's in front of him, primarily himself. This is called idolatry. And we need to realize that, that worshiping the wrong objects, the wrong gods, is the heart of the human problem. And it's not just physical things. You know, you can, look at Dan, you can look at Nebuchadnezzar, you can look still to this day at people groups on the planet who literally worship statues. Now, now I, I bet the majority of you, maybe even all of you, have never worshipped a statue, worshipped a, a physical, literal idol. But it's so important to realize that even though pagan representations of that kind of idol worship are prevalent throughout history and in the world. In the Western world, that tends not to be where we are oriented. I have a friend whose mother was Buddhist, and there were idols all over her house. And there was a main place she offered sacrifices and offerings to these idols in the corner of her home. And when my friend Junior's mother, Penny, Jamrianvit came to Christ, a woman from Thailand who was, was a hardworking woman who ran a 7-Eleven. She came to saving faith in Jesus through my friend Junior's testimony. And when Penny came to know that Jesus was her God and he died for her sins and changed everything, she was locked in from there on out. She went over that corner of her house where she had all of these idols that she would offer incense to and, and offer, offer different food things to and, and offer these things to God. She took them all out and she threw them out and she went and bought a stereo back in the day when stereos had really big speakers and she put the big speaker right in the corner where all those idols used to be and then she would blast worship music to Jesus from that corner of her house I love that imagery isn't that beautiful yeah, and, and that's what she did, right? I've seen the corner of her house. Now, sadly, Penny died a few years ago, and when she did, I went over to her house, and Junior told us about that corner of her house that became a place that emitted the worship of Christ, no longer idols that she worshiped. And, and you might not come from a background like Penny did from a Buddhist background, but I want you to realize that idolatry isn't fundamentally what you physically bow before. It's a matter of the heart. Listen to... The preacher A.W. Tozer, he says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most important fact about any man is not what he at any given time may say or do, but what he in his heart conceives God to be like. We tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. This is true not only of the individual Christian, but of the church. So what you think about God, do you have low views of God or high views of God? What what, what is idolatry? 
you know, t- t- later on in the same chapter in a book I highly recommend, Knowledge of the Holy by A-W-T-O-Z-E-R, he, he says that, that idolatry consists primarily in low thoughts of God, having thoughts of God that are unworthy of him. It begins in the mind and ends up in the heart, and we end up worshiping ourselves as a result. But when you have a high view of God, he alone gets the worship we have. And then Nebuchadnezzar's back and forth continues. You know, we ended last night with the fiery furnace rescue of the three. And watch the response in chapter 3, starting at verse 28, that Nebuchadnezzar has to the fiery furnace rescue. Listen to 3.28. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. He's still referring to God as their god. He's recognizing something great in this god, but it's not personal. It's not transformative. It's not gripping his heart in a life-changing way. It's still their God. He's admiring the way they are devoted to their God, but it's not becoming his reality. And that's the problem. They worship their own God. Therefore, I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruin, for there's no other God who's able to rescue this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to the province of Babylon. Isn't that interesting? And Nebuchadnezzar... uh, King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell on earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. And so he's impressed by God, but you can hear that it's not becoming his reality here. And after this expression... His dream is is interpreted in chapter 4. Nebuchadnezzar proclaims the glory of God and his handiwork. And the consequences of Nebuchadnezzar's pride then are seen. He goes back and forth. And what does he do? He erects an idol, an, an altar to himself. He carries this out, and he gets an interpretation of the second dream. And watch what happens in verse 28 of chapter 4. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. He says, look, you're this tree. You think you're the source of everything. You think you're the one who's who's, uh, providing everything for everybody rather than it coming from God. And so he says, you're going to be taken down because of this. You're going to be disciplined by God because of this. And he's restored after interpreting the second dream, and all this comes upon King Nebuchadnezzar. But look what he does again, just like in the video, verse 28. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, There fell a voice from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven forth from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. 
You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdoms of men and gives to it to whom he wills. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar, and he was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of the heavens till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers, and his nails were like the bird's claws. That's what happens to him. He loses his mind. And what you need to realize, even if you look really together, if you're worshiping yourself rather than God, you've lost your mind. There, there is a kind of insanity to thinking we're God. I think I've said before, there are two basic facts of human enlightenment. There is a God and you're not him. And when we get that reversed, we've lost our minds. Even if we look sane, We've gone down a path that puts us in the same posture as Nebuchadnezzar. He's not the source of all things, like this tree image shows us here. He's the one who is provided for by God, and he keeps forgetting that, and he keeps going back and forth and worshiping himself ultimately. How crazy that we would do this. Listen to Charles Bridges. Pride lifts up the heart against God. It contends for the supremacy with him. How unseemly, moreover, is this sin? A creature utterly dependent on God, fearfully guilty, yet proud in heart. When we really understand the depth of our human sin, it will be appalling to us that we would ever be proud before God. Paul says this to the Corinthians who are really wrestling with sin. What do you have that hasn't been given to you? hypothetical question the obvious answer is nothing dear ones you don't have one heartbeat without God you don't have one breath without God you don't have a molecule an atom a brain wave you don't have life you've got nothing apart from God and to think that somehow you take his place and seat yourself on his throne and you call the shots for your life crazy it's rebellion it's worthy of judgment and so after this, he's restored, and he acknowledges God again, back and forth and back and forth, having intellectual and emotional impact, but not true heart change, not true life change. Now, I know that, that there, there are people here all over the place in their relationship with God. Some of you don't have one, and you know that. You came here with maybe a Christian friend or you've been attending a church and, and you, this sounded fun to you to come up here and, and, and so you, you joined in and you're having fun. But, you know, the religious stuff, you're just enduring this part maybe. And, and I love that you're here. I'm so glad you're here. In many ways, the ministry of Hume is, is, is for you, wanting you to see that Jesus is the answer you desperately need. And, and so I'm glad you're here, but I want you to know that sin is serious, and God takes it seriously, and he judges it. A holy God has to do that, and he wants to do that because he loves holiness. He loves righteousness. Some of you are here, and you think you're a Christian. You, you think you really have a relationship with God, but maybe this week you're realizing, you know, maybe I just know a lot of right answers to questions, 
Maybe I've heard enough Christian teaching, so, so I, I've assured myself that, that I have a relationship with God. Some of you are here this week, and, and you're maybe coming to realize, you know what? I think I'm a religious person, and I think I'm a moral person pretty much because of that, but I'm not sure I actually have a relationship with God. I'm not sure, I'm not a lot like Nebuchadnezzar, that when times are tough and I pray and, and God seems to provide, that I'll give him allegiance for a while. And then I just go my own way again. And I do whatever I want. Some of you are true Christians and you're struggling. And I want you to hear that God is for you and he's with you. And following him and his ways are the way to live. And some of you are thriving Christians. I've met plenty of, of you, and I'm so grateful. And you need to keep hearing this message, too. God is for you, and he's with you in Christ. So stay with him and stay on that path. And don't go down the road of self-determination. Listen to what Jesus says. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, oh, that day many will say to me, Lord, we prophesied in your name, we cast out demons, we did stuff in ministry even, and we did mighty works in your name, and I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Sometimes I think being religious or being moral can give us a sense of not being sinful and needing forgiveness. You know, my mother led me to Christ when I was a little kid. She was raising my brother and me by herself, and she, she started doing that when we were three and five, and, and it was a rough family. I come from a pretty broken family situation, and, and in the midst of it, my mother would sit my brother and me on her lap and read the Bible to us. I think I told you this. And, and she always considered herself a Christian. But, you know, when, when I was still a baby, she went to church one day, and the preacher preached a challenging message about exactly what I'm talking about now. He may say, you know, you may have gone to church your whole life. You may have learned lots of right answers. You may know how to find books in the Bible. But you've never seen yourself as really needing forgiveness because you're a pretty nice person. And it's actually hard for you to believe that you needed Jesus to die on a cross for you for forgiveness of sins. But you're not that bad after all. And he said, so tell me, why should I believe you're actually a Christian? And it ticked my mother off. And she went home, and on a Wednesday, she was still muttering about this sermon, and she was saying things like, how dare he question whether I'm in the kingdom or not. Does he have any idea who my father was? My grandfather was a Salvation Army preacher. He was an evangelist. He would go downtown and preach the gospel in three languages, standing in a milk crate. She was saying, that was my father. I'll have him know. And, and I know Bible verses, and I never miss Sunday school. I, I won awards for attendance in Sunday school. And she's listing her religious pedigree. And as she's feeding me in a high chair, she said it was like the Holy Spirit came upon her and convicted her of sin for the first time in her life. And she realized that she was like that Pharisee the Apostle Paul had been before Jesus met him on the road to Damascus and got him to the end of himself. She said she put down the spoon she was feeding me with. She went in her bedroom, got on her knees, and she repented, she thinks, for the first time in her life. And so we need to realize there's a way of relating to God that's really like Nebuchadnezzar. You know, when we feel desperate, we'll go to him. 
We'll thank him when he seems to provide. And then we'll get on with our lives all by ourselves. Without him calling the shots. And so we have got to come to grips with our sin. Pride will keep us from God. Listen to James. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. Draw near to God, and he'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. And until you're willing to face the reality of your rebellion against God, You'll never come to that kind of exaltation he brings. We need to come to grips with our pride and our rebellion before God. And I don't think there's any better explanation than the one we find in Romans chapter 1. So please turn there. Listen to this description the Bible gives of the reality of human sin. I, I don't think you could define it better than this. You know, I, I pay attention to the way we talk. That's one of the things we theologians do, and I hope you do too as theologians. We pay attention to the way we talk. And in my lifetime, I've watched sin be talked about in increasingly human-centered ways, right? Um, and, and so we'll get to it, but, but pay attention to how God-centered the description of human sin is in Romans chapter 1, beginning of verse 18. Here we go. Lord, please help us to hear from you here. Romans 1, 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. You look at those mountains and those trees. You feel the wind through these aspen trees with the, the, the leaves fluttering. And you see beauty and majesty and intelligence all around us. And you can say, God who made that is awesome, in other words. But that's not how we tend to respond. We want credit for ourselves. Look what it says. Next, verse 20. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. God is pressing home his reality through the created order all the time. Why are they without excuse? For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile, empty in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And here's the best description you can ever find of the human sin problem. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged, exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who's blessed forever. Amen. That's what sin is. It's, it's worshipping self instead of God. It's exchanging God worship for creature worship. That's what it is centrally. And so we need to come to terms with our sin. Listen to this excellent quote by Alan Ross we have. 
a thorough knowledge of the word of God, an unwavering trust in the goodness of God are absolutely essential for spiritual victory over the world, the flesh, and the devil. We need the word. I love in the videos how Darlene keeps going to the book. She keeps going to God's word for her, even how to help people well. When she needs insight, she goes to the word of God and to prayer. And that's what we need. We need a thorough knowledge of the word of God and unwavering trust in his goodness if we're ever going to overcome our sin and the effects of this fallen world on us, the flesh and the devil. But, but here's the thing. We're just not helped in understanding sin. Here, here's, here's why I say that. Listen. Do you know where I bet? I don't know for sure, but, but I would bet a lot of money on this. Do you know where I bet you've seen the word sin and related words more than anywhere else outside the Bible in your life? Dessert menus. Dessert menus. We describe like food we really want with sinful words. Like, like I have some examples. I have tons. Look, these are some sort of cookie dough conquest. Sinfully delicious. Isn't that wild? You're like, what? What's that about? Look at this one. It's sinfully delicious. It's so good. It's sinful. What? Look at this one. The confection. Confess your love for cheesecake. Look, forgive me chocolate for I've sinned. I've not yet had my daily confection. What? It's all over the place. Look at this one. Orange County Register. Even for a guy who's paid to indulge, he, he tests pizzas out. These dishes are sinfully over the top. Look at this one. In my pharmacy right next to my house. For nail polish. Sinful colors. Isn't that bizarre? Now, if you understand what sin is, you've got to back up and say, what in the world is going on here, right? All right, calm down. Here we go. Stay locked in. Stop talking. Stop talking. Listen. Stay with me. Stay with me. What does this kind of stuff do to your ability in your heart to understand sin? Talk to me. One person, raise your hand and tell me. What do you think? Oh, were you pointing to her because she had an answer? Oh, what'd you say? Oh, why are you pointing to her? We'll get to that later. All right. Yes, what do you think? What do you think? What's that? It desensitizes. That's a great word. You're not sensitive to it anymore. What else? Another hand. Don't just yell. Back here. Yeah, sin's usually bad, and this is a marketing campaign to convince you that this is good because it's sinful, right? Yeah. Yes, I love that. Somebody up here? Yeah, what do you got? Propaganda. Yeah, good. It's propaganda making sin seem like a good thing. What else will it do? One, a hand. Give me a hand. What do you got? Yeah. Yeah. It'll make your life better. That's right. Beautiful. Right. So it, it trivializes sin. Go ahead. Yeah. It's so deceptive, isn't it? Yeah, listen. Okay, that's good. That's good. Let's keep rolling. Listen. 
Listen, it trivializes sin. It mocks the very idea, right? When I said uh, dessert menus before, there's always that dessert, right? Chocolate decadence, sinful chocolate uh, 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 volcano, all these things. Uh, Haagen-Dazs had an end campaign years ago called Haagen-Dazs, Enjoy the Guilt. Jaguar, we're we're done with the hands for now. Um, um, uh, uh, Jaguar had a whole ad campaign saying you can satisfy the seven deadly sins if you buy a Jaguar vehicle. Isn't that wild? Yeah, you don't even realize it anymore. You just walk in the pharmacy, you see nail polish described as sinful and you just don't even notice. But it's affecting you. It's affecting you. You're getting all kinds of messages from our present day Babylon telling you sin's no big deal. You know, broccoli, ah, chocolate decadence, that's what you want. When you hear a positive message about sin all the time, it deadens your ability to really see the grievousness of it. And so we've got to get what the Bible says about sin. Look at all the ways the Bible describes sin. Listen to these terms. Missing the mark, evil, disobedience, transgression, uh, iniquity, lawlessness, trespass, ignorance, godlessness, wickedness, unbelief, unrighteousness, and unholiness. Those are God-focused, God-centered realities. Here's a great definition of sin by Oliver Buswell. Sin is anything in the creature which does not express or which is contrary to the nature of the creator. See how God-focused that is? God-centered that is? How relational that is? And so what you need to realize is our problem in our sin is not the way it affects me, although we need to care for one another in the way sin affects us. Our problem's with God. Here's what I constantly see happening in the church more and more as we pay attention how we talk. I'll hear people talk about sin, but they use words not like this, but like broken. Now, does sin make me broken? Yeah. But my brokenness is a symptom of my rebellion and our rebellion in this fallen world. And we talk about sin in ways that makes us pity the sinner in ourselves, but never imagine we're worthy of judgment. Never imagine that we actually deserve a holy God to judge us in our sin and rebellion. It's amazing how we we want words that soften the blow and make us victims rather than part of the problem, like G.K. Chesterton realized when he said, I am the problem of the world. And so we've got to move back to a biblical way of talking about sin that's God-centered in this. And it's fundamentally loving ourselves. Look at this verse. People will be lovers of self rather than lovers of God. Bottom line. That's what sin is, defined in this God-centered way. And you need to realize three important things about sin. You ready? One, sin's a heart problem. Our heart problem of rebellion against God shows up in things we do, but it starts in the heart. Out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, and slander, Jesus says. Paul puts it this way, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What that means is we're intended to glorify God with our lives. And like he says in Romans 1, we glorify ourselves instead. So one, sin is a heart problem. Two, we realize that sin is a worship problem, like that said in Romans 1, right? It's a worship problem. Sin is always and ultimately related to God, and it's personal and it's relational. Yes, it hurts people. Yes, it hurts ourselves. Yes, it makes our world a dark place. But our problem is fundamentally with God. They exchange the truth about God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. This is how David says it in Psalm 51. 
Now, you need to realize that David here is repenting of his sin with Bathsheba. Now, if you're not familiar with that story, here's what you need to know. You know the Ten Commandments? In his sin with Bathsheba, David broke half of them. Half of the Ten Commandments he crushed in his sin with Bathsheba. And when he finally comes to terms with it and deals with it and faces it, here's what he says. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions. And my sin is ever before me against you. You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Now, is he saying his sin against Bathsheba, his sin against her husband Uriah, who he had killed after he had adultery, committed adultery with his wife, his sin against his nation, all that horizontal stuff, it matters. But he's saying, relatively speaking, my problem's with God. If I don't get that sorted out, nothing else will get rightly sorted out. We need to come to terms with the God-centeredness of God himself and the way he understands and views our condition as human beings. So sin is a heart problem, it's a worship problem, and fundamentally, it's a relationship problem. And that's the last one. Sin is a relationship problem. Your iniquities have made a separation between you and God, and the wages of sin is death. This is the reality of it all. So it's relational, it's a heart issue, it's a worship issue, but sin does, I don't want to overcomplicate it or over-spiritualize it, sin does boil down to doing what God says, not worshiping that false idol, not looking at that website that you know isn't pleasing to him. Not exalting yourself and shading the truth to make yourself look better than you are. Not laughing at racist jokes or, or sexually immoral things. Not, not seeking entertainment that, that you know isn't honoring to God and good for your soul. Spending time with the Lord and in his word and in prayer and doing the things that feed your soul. And then seeking to love people the way Jesus calls us to love people. And the power of the Spirit is how we need to live. And when we dethrone God and put ourselves there, it sabotages all of that. And Jesus says, if you love me, you'll obey me. Isn't that amazing? I love the exuberant worship then that's taking place here. It's beautiful. But you know what? As great as that is, and, and, and I'm sure as genuine as it is, Jesus doesn't say... If you love me, you'll, you'll worship me with exuberance and excitement. And, and I'm not putting that down. I told you I love that. And, and that, that shit, when it's genuine, is, is a pleasing thing to God. He deserves your enthusiasm. But there's a fundamental reality to expressing love that shows up in obedience. Jesus says, if you love me, you'll obey me. Because when we see God for who he is, we do what he says, plain and simple. And it doesn't mean we don't struggle with that. And, and sin is basically breaking God's law. And I want to tell you, your generation has not been helped in the way people have talked to you about yourself, about what you really need in life. We're so affirming that we're afraid of telling people the truth about their sinful condition. And I don't want to be part of that problem. You guys remember Smokey the Bear? Here's a picture of my daughter Paige when she was little with a Smokey the Bear that we ran into in a ranger station. That's old school Smokey. Does anybody remember what he used to say? What his slogan was? Nice. Oh, who said that? He sounded just like him. Very nice. Yeah. Only you can present forest fires. And see, he's pointing at you, saying you're responsible. You need to own 
not starting forest fires. Only you can do this. He's putting response. Do you know this is not what Smokey looks like anymore? And this is not what he says anymore. Here's the new Smokey targeting your generation. Yeah, now calm down. Listen, stay locked in here. Stay locked in. Here's it is. Here it is. He doesn't, he doesn't hold you responsible anymore. All he does is hug you when you do the right thing. And, which is great. I'm all for positive affirmation and hugs. But listen to what the guy who led the marketing campaign to change it says. The hugs are part of the decision to turn Smokey into a character who's depicted as rewarding people rather than entreating them or admonishing them to take personal responsibility. It's moving the tone away from sober, which doesn't resonate with young people, he added, while maintaining the seriousness of the issue. Smokey is changing from a teacher or authority figure into a model of positive reinforcement. Now hear me, this is so fascinating. Again, it's wonderful to affirm people when they do the right thing. But is there any space for rebuking people when they do the wrong thing? Ahead of time, holding them accountable for their responsibility before God to obey his ways. Isn't that interesting? They're reading your generation, because you guys start most of the forest fires. I'm telling you. 15 to 24 are the forest fire starter ages. I'm just telling you. And so, so the marketing has to go to you guys. So they market in a way that resonates with you, which isn't about responsibility. It's just about being affirmed. And if somebody does anything but affirm you, you think they're mean. You think they're harsh. But God gives us his word. And he tells us what's true. And God's preachers and God's prophets tell us what's true. And the truth is we've got a serious sin problem. But the great news is God has a solution to it that we're going to focus on tomorrow night. And here's what it is. We have it there? Maybe not. He gives a solution in his son. Right when we fell in the Garden of Eden, he says... I've got a solution, and it's going to be the seed of the woman who comes and crushes the head of the serpent who got us into this mess in the first place and restores us in a relationship with God through Jesus. We don't have to live like Nebuchadnezzar back and forth between so-called worship of God that only lasts for a little while while you're maybe at Hume on a mountaintop experience and doesn't get translated back into home. We don't want that. We're not interested in that. We want life change. We want transformed hearts that worship God and see Jesus as our life. Let's pray. Lord, help us to see Jesus as our life. Help us to not be ping-pongs in our relationship with you, just uh, trivializing you as a God who um, helps us out when we need it, and then we ignore you the rest of the time. Lord, we thank you that there's forgiveness for sins. You tell us that... Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. And we thank you that in Jesus, there was shedding of blood and forgiveness of sins. Lord, thank you that you tell us the truth about ourselves and not just what will be easy for us to hear. And so, Lord, I pray for each of us here tonight, myself included, that you would help us to come to a deeper realization as we continue to ponder these truths of our sin before you so that we cherish and treasure the solution in Jesus more than ever. And we pray this in his name. Amen.